This morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you want to turn there in your Bible or if you have the bulletin, the text is there. And I will read only the first 10 verses right now. I'll read the others when we get to them. But we will cover the whole chapter this morning. Hear now God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools." Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Father, we ask that you would give your blessing to the reading and the hearing of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last Sunday, Brian preached on a, on a key truth. And that key truth was uh, focused on the word soul. The nephesh, the soul of a person, that inner part, uh, that non-material, invisible part of us, uh, call it desires, or appetites, the will, the affections, uh, the mind, the heart, those things that are, are not part of our bodies, that make us human, that make us people, that are essential to us, that make us a living being, not trees and rocks. And the point was... That, that nothing in this material world, and that includes material things and sometimes immaterial things like reputation or, or love from others, none of those things can satisfy the soul. And that God created the soul to be needy of something beyond this world. And the application of the sermon was that if we have a deficient view of man, if we have a deficient view of what man is, then we get into all sorts of trouble because we only seek to live for material things. And he gave a couple of examples of that. This morning's text is related to that. In fact, the two chapters could really go together. And, and uh, the point that we will look at this morning is this, that if the soul cannot be satisfied by anything in this world, then what do we do when the world comes up short? And, and you could give all sorts of names to what you would call that gap. When, when the world fails to meet the needs of your soul, you could call it frustration. You could call it disappointment. Uh, you could call it things like loss and grief and abuse. You could call it uh, the miseries of life. Or you could call it suffering in all its forms. What do we do with suffering? 
And how do we understand it? And like last Sunday, if you have a deficient view of man that leads to a deficient understanding of life, you will also have a deficient view of suffering, an ungodly view of suffering. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. How does, the, uh, how does what we learned last Sunday apply to the area specifically of suffering? The outline is very simple. The first point we'll look at in the first 10 verses is that there are seven better ways to suffer. And I call this wisdom for all. Then we'll look at even better ways to suffer, wisdom for Christians. And lastly, we'll look at if you only remember one thing, we'll look at Solomon's personal testimony. So seven better ways to suffer, wisdom for all. A couple of introductory matters. Last Sunday's text used that word nephesh, soul, over and over and over. We don't find it in these verses, these first 10 verses. What we find is the Hebrew word lev or heart, which means similar, a very similar thing. It speaks of the inner man. Uh, and, and in order to avoid the weeds of getting into what the words actually mean, it's a narrower word than nephesh, where nephesh includes all of that immaterial part of man, uh, heart tends to focus more in the idea of conscience, of our, of our conscience. It's used almost 600 times in Scripture, and it shows up five times in this text, in the first 10 verses. Uh, it is even earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes that we find it, where it says that he, God, has made everything beautiful in his time. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what he has done from the beginning to the end. So we're talking about the same thing this Sunday. We're talking about man's inner part, that invisible part of us, the heart. There's another idea that's introduced in these first 10 verses, and that is the idea of the fool. The word here is the word kessel. It, it comes from uh, a word that means to be sluggish or out of shape. The fool is sluggish or out of shape. Uh, and what that means is that in their thinking, they are lazy. They get lazy when it comes to thinking. We don't typically associate thinking with like exertion, but it is. Uh, we have a very beloved friend in this church who's now in seminary and hasn't studied for a while and is going through fatigue mentally of being in seminary classes. And it's amazing how tiring that can be. To actually think takes work and energy. The fool is the person who doesn't want to give the energy needed to think rightly about something. And in verses 4, 5, and 6 in our passage today, we see this idea of a fool. When you think of the word fool and the wise, uh, immediately comes to your mind the book of Proverbs. And uh, you might have noticed something in the text this morning, just in how it appears, that changes. It's gone to more of a form of, of verse or poetry or what you would see in the book of Proverbs. And that's because it is more of a proverbial statement. You also see that idea of it being more of a proverb in the use of a, another word. And that's the word better. Seven times in the first ten verses we find Better than, this is better than that, this is better than that, this is better than that. In other words, these are words of advice. And so there are seven better ways to suffer here. And I say wisdom for all because 
the first 10 verses here is really what we would put under maybe the category of common grace. God's wisdom for all people at all times. So if somebody, for example, came up to me and said, Tony, I'm going through a hard time and I would like you to tell me, what, what do you think about my, my suffering? But I don't want you to tell me any of your Jesus stuff. Just leave Jesus out of it. Would I have anything to say to somebody that came up to me and asked me that question? The answer is yes. Seven things right here in this text that are true for all of us, whether or not you bring God into the equation. I'm going to go through them real quick because I want to get to the end, but here's what they are. The first is, if you're going to suffer in this world, then suffer with integrity, verse 1. Suffer with a good name. The danger of suffering is often that we are willing to compromise our integrity to get out of whatever the difficulty is or avoid it altogether. So if you're going to suffer, suffer, suffer with integrity. Don't, don't suffer because you steal something or because you lie or because you commit uh, infidelity. Don't, don't let those things be the reason you suffer. If you're going to suffer, maintain a good name. Secondly, uh, suffer with engagement. Lay it to heart, it says in verse 2. In other words, it, let it rest on your heart. Don't try to just get out from underneath it. Isn't it the case that in suffering, we just want to be done with it? We, we want to escape from it. Is it it's, and it uses a picture here of a funeral. Is it more fun to go to a party or to go to a funeral? It's more fun to go to a party. Is it more beneficial to go to a funeral or to go to a party? Well, if you're thinking and, and using the opportunity to ponder more meaningful things, probably a funeral. And that's the point here is don't, don't look for the easy out to escape. Engage with suffering. Thirdly, let it affect your emotions. Verse 3 and 4 talks about sorrow, having sorrow. You know, there's a temptation when we suffer to minimize things. To, to sort of take the approach of, that's ah, no biggie. In fact, we can be as guilty as the world of doing that when we set, come to someone who's going through a hardship and we say, you know, I'm really sorry you're going through that, but God works all things together for good. And, and it's, it's not ill-intended, but it's, it minimizes the suffering. And the advice here that Solomon's giving is, let, let yourself feel sorrow. There's nothing wrong to feel sorrowful. I'm going to skip verses 5 and 6. Verse 7 and the beginning of 8, suffer with endurance. It says the end of a thing is better than the beginning. You know, we just don't like to have to get to the end of something. We don't mind something starting, but we are very bad at finishing things to the end. We'd rather end it early. And that's what it's saying here is don't give up. In the midst of suffering, don't give up before it gets to the end. You don't know what the end is. You, you don't know what the outcome is. You, you don't know what might come of this. So stay with it. And then patience in verses 8, the second part in verse 9. And it gets into this idea of pride and anger, right? Pride and anger. And the, 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 the wisdom here is this. When you suffer, avoid the idea that you just got to take charge, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and fix it. Avoid fixism. Because if you do fix it, then what happens is you become prideful. And if you don't fix it, then what happens? Well, you become angry. 
And so it's a no-win situation to take a fix-it approach to hardship and suffering. And then lastly, contentment. If you're going to suffer in this world, suffer with some contentment. It says here that the former days, right? You look forward to the former days. In other words, it's sort of like complacency. The danger is to be complacent, to sit back and say, you know what? If I just wait long enough, things might go back to how they once were. Isn't that how we've approached COVID? We just, we just all want to wait until it goes away and, and things go back to the way that they just were. Well, they're not going to. And, and sitting around and being complacent, wishing that the former days would come back, is just not wise. So these are, why, these are things of advice that Solomon says that we could give to somebody if they said, tell me about suffering and how to do it in a good way, but don't tell me anything about Jesus. Now, a couple of weeks back, Ben Spivey preached, and he mentioned a, the idea of a form of chiasm. Chiasm is just a structure in, in the passage. And this section, these first 10 verses, form a wonderful chiasm. What a chiasm is, it's like the first point and the last point say the same, and the second and the second to last, and the third and the third to last. It's sort of like a big neon sign, an arrow that says, eat at Joe's. And wherever the point is, that's the main point. That's why I skipped verses 5 and 6. I'll show you real quickly the chiasm. In the beginning, integrity. And then the bottom is contentment. So don't suffer without compromise. Suffer without complacency. Don't take shortcuts and don't do nothing. Those ideas relate. And then the second one, engagement. And the, and the second to last, patience. Suffer, but don't escape it and don't fall into the trap of fixing it. You see how they relate. Don't fix it. Don't try to escape from it. Then the third one, emotions and the third to last, endurance. Don't, when you suffer, don't minimize it and don't give up, meaning don't maximize it. Don't make it something littler than it is. Let yourself feel it, but also don't make it bigger than it is. And so this is a chiasm pointing right to verse 5 and 6. And that's the key point. And you get that in the text as well. Notice that's the only one where it says at the end of it, this is also vanity. Right? That's, that's the linguistic marker to say this is the key point of these first 10 verses. Suffer with wise community. Listen to what it says again. Verse 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Let me summarize what that means. When you suffer, avoid the danger of listening to the wrong messages spoken to you by the wrong people. The wrong messages and the wrong people. Why? Because we like to have happy news, not rebukes. And we would rather be uh, hearing the songs of fools than the words of the wise. We would rather get our wisdom from the echo chamber of social media than from wise friends who love us enough to tell us the truth about something. And, and we see this all the time. I was reading, uh, flipping through just to get uh, a little break from thinking through the sermon this morning. I was on social media, a friend of mine from years ago, uh, and she knows the Lord and loves the Lord, but she posted this little statement uh, on, on her Facebook page. And, uh, oh, I wish I could, I, it's on my phone. I wish I could uh, cite, I'm going to get it because it's worth reading. And, um, 
And I love her. I love her, but, 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 listen to this. She read this quote from an unknown author. It says this, only in my pain did I find my own will. Only in my chaos did I learn to be still. Only in my fear did I find my own might. Only in my own darkness did I find my own light. Catchy. It's got over some hundred likes. Dozens of comments, people. They're all wonderful, positive comments about it. And I thought, should I write it or not? This is absolute garbage for someone who knows Jesus to post this. I'm sorry, but you need to say, only in my pain do I find the Lord's will. And only in my chaos do I learn his protection to be still in him. And only in my fear do I find his strength. And only in my darkness do I find him to be light. And I thought, this person knows Christ. I know they do. But I thought, what absolute trash. And nobody had the courage to say that. We would rather get our wisdom off of social media and other places where we get to hear all the fluffy words of friends who would never tell us something that we need to hear. And that's the key point that Solomon's making here is that's dangerous. So where do you go then if you're going to see and find wisdom? That's where we get to verses 11. There are some even better ways to suffer. And these are the ways that God gives us as Christians, as those who know Christ. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is, a, it is, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that the people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. There's a distinct shift in this passage. And, and that is to whom it is being written. Uh, and you have to look at some of the, the statements to pick that out. But it is to those, notice it says in verse 11, to those who see the sun. That's different than, than what we've seen over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not about those who are under the sun, but those who see the sun. A subtle but important distinction. Those who relate to life under the sun, but in a different way. Verse 13 says, consider the work of God. Those who consider the work of God. Those who ponder and think about how God has worked and is working in this world. 
Verse 18, those who fear God. These are words written to those who fear God. And verse 26 will say, this is written to those who please God. The shift here is not only that God has been added to the equation, but that he is now speaking to a group of people who have a different relationship to God than he was in the first 10 verses, than those who don't know him. These are words to you and I if we know Christ. And in the beginning of the passage, he says something very interesting. Verse 11, he talks about wisdom. He says, wisdom is good, but then there's this qualifier, with an inheritance. Wisdom is good, but only with an inheritance. What is that inheritance? And I wish we had more time to jump into it. Um, Jesus sort of alludes to the idea when he's speaking to the people in Matthew 6, and he's encouraging them to not lay out treasures on earth where thieves steal and moths destroy, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And, and if you want to, I'm going to give you the answer ahead of time because we just don't have the time to look at it, but, but the inheritance that makes wisdom good is Christ, is his kingdom. Uh, you see it uh, just for one example. I'm going to read three verses out of Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, this is Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read actually four verses. Verse 11, then 13 and 14, and then verse 18. In him, Paul writes, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Then verse 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Having the eyes of your heart, and then I, this is verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Wisdom is good with an inheritance, with Christ. It is, and it brings a great advantage to the one who knows Christ when it comes to suffering. In other words, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an advantage, Solomon would say twice, you have an advantage when it comes to the question of suffering. Well, why do we have an advantage? And that's the subject of these verses. In verses 13 and 14, we have an advantage because we understand that God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God is an advantage when it comes to understanding and living well through hardship. It, it makes this interesting statement. It says uh, that no one can make crooked, or no one can make straight what God has made crooked. I would think if I was writing this, I'd write that the other way around. I'd say God has made something straight, and who can make it crooked? But notice it doesn't say that. It's emphasizing here the sovereignty of God over all things, even the things in life that appear to be crooked. It then goes on and talks about it in another way. It talks about prosperity and adversity. And it says God made both. In other words, it's not, 
We, we tend to sometimes, when, when we address the issue of suffering, feel like we have to become uh, apologists and defendants of God's goodness. That we have to kind of dis, dispel bad things as God didn't do that, or he had nothing to do with that, as though he's guilty of something. And, and God here himself, through Solomon, is saying, no, put it on me. I make all things, I'm sovereign over all things, the good and the not good. I made, I make, I have made the crooked for a reason. And who can make it straight? Thomas Boston wrote a book on verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 7. The book's title is uh, The Crook in the Lot. And in it, he outlines all of these ways that God uses uh, things that he made crooked for his good. He uses sufferings. He uses them to test. He uses them to turn hearts. He uses them to bring conviction, to correct, to protect his people, to reveal himself, to warn. And he goes on and on and on with all these ways God makes things crooked in his sovereignty. I think it may have been Boston who wrote this, but I didn't write down, so don't quote me on that he said this or not. But uh, a great statement I read on this is this. God is not interested in straightening out crooked things. He's interested in straightening out crooked people, of saving crooked sinners. And sometimes he uses the crooked to do that. Paul's summary as he gets to the end of Romans 11, and he's talking there about a, a thing that has baffled him, the, the hardness of heart of his own people, the Jews. And, and he gets to the end of it, and all he can say as he's pondered this, he sort of has a Solomon moment. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. And I think perhaps the greatest example of God making something crooked is the cross. The greatest event of human injustice in all of history, the most evil act of mankind, was a part of God's ordained sovereign plan to do something for the salvation of his people. And if God ordained the cross something very crooked, then who can make it straight? Who, who should come along and when we come to this question of suffering, try to, to, to do away with the idea that God would permit any suffering, the cross demolishes that idea immediately and fully. For God has used the most crooked thing to accomplish the most glorious end. So, Sovereignty is an advantage. What's another advantage? Another advantage is that we understand the danger of self-reliance. It's a really funny phrase, but there it says, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. Uh, you can fall off both sides of a horse. <laughs> don't, don't be self-righteous and don't be unrighteous. And, and both of those are forms of self-reliance. Let me explain what I mean by that. Self-righteousness is self-reliance because it says this, I will be good and then God will not let me suffer. I will be good enough, then God will not let anything happen to me. Right? Now, unrighteousness 
takes the opposite route and it says this, I'm going to be evil because then I will not let myself suffer. I will do everything I can to avoid suffering, even if it means I have to lie or steal or take what's not mine. Sin, I will take care of myself and make sure. Both are forms of self-reliance and both are condemned. Do not be overly righteous or self-righteous. Don't be overly wicked or unrighteous. But fear God. The remedy there is to fear God. We read of that this morning in our call to worship, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? And, and this idea of fearing God has nothing to do with being scared, nothing to do with like going out and being frightened. It has to do with having a, a heart that rightly reveres and stands in awe of the Lord. It's, it's an idea of worship. In other words, worshiping God in the midst of our hardship brings us the wisdom of God to understand our hardship. And then the passage goes on to give us three evidences of, of, of fearing God. How do you know that you're fearing God? If I was pastoring you and you're going through a hardship, how would I discern that you are fearing God instead of falling into the traps of self or unrighteousness? The first is in verse 19. You ask for help. It says that there's wisdom is more strength-giving than ten rulers. In other words... You, you don't rely upon all the resources you might have, right? If you knew 10 kings, uh, that you would go out and get them to help you solve your problems. But rather, wisdom that comes from the Lord gives more strength than all the human resources of 10 of the most powerful people if you did know them and they were willing to help you. The point here is you ask for help. You ask for help. James chapter 1 Right? It gives that well-known passage of count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. And then it goes on and says this right on after talking about trials or suffering. It goes on and says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So one way you can tell if you or another person fear God is you're asking him for help. A second way is you acknowledge your sin. In verse 20, surely there's no one, uh, no righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's a very general statement. Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul would say. And both kinds of sin are included in there. There's no one who does good, meaning no one does everything that God requires. That talks about sins of omission, the things where we omit to do something that we should have done, but we didn't do. And it includes those sins of commission. They never sin. They never do the things that God says don't do. There's not one of us who never has done the things that God tells us not to do. And there's not one of us who's ever done everything that God tells us to do. Not a single one of us. How do you know if someone fears God? They have a, a true view of humanity. That's not to be a doomsdayer. It's not to, you know, 
but, but it flies in the face of what much of the world is telling us today of the goodness of man. There's a sort of a, a teaching of the inherent goodness that we have. And that's just not the way we are. And that's just not how scripture says it is. And then it goes from the general to the specific in chapter, in verse 21, a third way you can know if you are fearing God. And that is you have a true assessment of yourself. You have a true assessment of yourself. You know, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I heard this verse uh, or this idea stated once this way. On the final day, when we stand before God, he, he won't even have to open his word to condemn our hearts. He'll just have to simply play back our own words. We, we, will, we, we won't need the word of God to be open to bring a condemnation of our sinfulness. We'll self-condemn ourselves by the things we've said and done. Because we know better. We've given up the reality that we know it's wrong to do X, but then we did X. And we know it's wrong not to do Y, but we didn't do Y. And we will self-condemn. How do you know when people fear God? They ask for help. They recognize the depravity of mankind. And they understand their own personal depravity. And then they fear God. Now, we'll conclude with this. If you only remember one thing, the personal testimony. Let me read verses 23 through 29. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He's not saying women are bad and men have a small, minute chance of being good. Uh, we'll dispel that idea right away. This is Solomon's own personal testimony. And he, the wisest man ever, says that wisdom was far from him. If, if wisdom was far from him, what, what hope do we have? Right? It was far from him. It was way over his head. And it wasn't for lack of effort. He looked, he searched, he, he sought repeatedly over and over and over and over. But he found that the task was too much for him to come up with an answer. When it talks of wisdom, the book of Job speaks of it this way. He says, from where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. Uh, the, the task is too great. Now, this is Solomon's personal testimony. I, I'm going to say that there's, uh, well, first of all, he says in verse 26, adultery is dangerous. 
That's, that's just the summary statement. He says, I have learned personally, I thought I was really wise in my relationships, but I wasn't. And I think that the statement of women and men is actually from Solomon's understanding uh, regarding his relationships. He said, maybe I had a few good guys that I was friends with, but all the ladies in my life I was unwise with. There was not a single relationship that I had in that area of my life that demonstrated wisdom. That's, that's where I think Solomon's saying the none among women and the one among men is his own reflection on his own life. But then he says in verse 28 that righteousness is rare. It's rare to find a, a righteous act. And then he says in verse 29, expressions of sin are endless. The schemes of man are endless. I, I think of nothing new under the sun. If there was anything new under the sun, I think it might be expressions of wickedness. Um, but even those, we're told, aren't new. They're just new to us. But then there's this very cryptic phrase that I want us to focus on in verse 28. This phrase where he says, One man among a thousand I found. So in all of his searching and searching and searching, he says, It was far from me. I never found anything. I never answered my question. And then he makes the statement, One man among a thousand I found. A thousand is a number that expresses in Hebrew in, in, the innumerable number. Endless. All. Amongst all of man, one I have found. And I, I wonder if this statement doesn't fit the category where Peter would write and say that the prophets, when they were being carried along by the Spirit and they were speaking the Word of God, that they at times made statements that even themselves they did not understand. That they said something that was even beyond their understanding to what it was actually talking about. I think here Solomon was talking about his own personal life, but I wonder if this one among thousands is not an allusion to Christ. That, that he found that there had to be an answer. There had to be one who, who would resolve if there was ever going to be a remedy to the sufferings of this world, that there would be a one, that it had to be revealed. Paul picks up this idea uh, of, of Christ maybe being that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, where he says that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That Christ is the wisdom that comes with an inheritance. That, that he is the wisdom that embodies the sovereignty of God on the cross. That he is the wisdom of God that is not overly righteous in self-righteousness and not overly wicked. He is the one who comes and is a help. He is the one who is the, uh, the, the advocate for his people. Blaise Pascal would write this. Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. But knowing Christ strikes the balance. Because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. He becomes the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation for us. The writer of Hebrews seemed to understand that too when he spoke of Christ being the final word. 
of God. That, that he was the exact representation of God sent. And he was sent for the purpose of making purification of sins for his people. And then sitting down at the right hand of God. So there's some good wisdom in here. For us just sound pieces of advice that I could give you for how to suffer and how to face hardship in your life. There are some really uh, even greater advantages if you know Christ. There are greater truths that shape how we would suffer if we know Christ, if we know the sovereignty of God, if we know uh, at the depths of our own sinfulness, if we know the, uh, these, these truths that are not revealed to the world. But then there's this one thing, if you only remember one thing. It took one man among all of the thousands, Christ, to bring to, to bring to a resolution the issue and the struggle with suffering. We will suffer in this life until that day when he returns and when he makes all things new. Until then, he, he is the only answer that we have. Let us cling to that answer. And let us love God and seek God's wisdom even in our sufferings, knowing that, that when the world falls short of meeting that gap in our souls and in our hearts, that God has given us the one who can fill that gap. And along with that greatest need that he meets, will he not also give us all other things needful, needful to face the difficulties of this life? Let me pray for us. Father, there's probably not a day goes by that we don't live in the midst of this passage. Every day we suffer, even if it's just in minor ways. And some of us suffer in, in, in heartbreaking ways and long-term ways. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the one who came to remedy our depravity. For if you counted our iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But thank you for Christ who stands, and, and not only stands, but stands in heaven today, who stands in your presence, who stands on behalf of us, your people, and who pleads with you for us. I pray that whatever we go through, we would go through it together as a family of God, and that we would urge one another always to be pressing into Christ and to be seeking the wisdom that comes from above, to never be ashamed because of our struggles. You do not promise that we would not suffer in this life, but you also promise that when we come and ask for wisdom, you give it and you don't give reproach. You never look at us and say, oh, you should have figured that out yourself, Tony, or you didn't really need me for that. You never reproach us, but you draw us into Christ and that you fix our eyes and our hearts firmly on him. We thank you for that one man among the thousands. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.